Dotnet Rocks episode 854 with guest Mark Heath. Recorded live Thursday, February 28th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NET, it's uh, a Thursday show. It is. We've been doing a few of those. In fact, we do one every Thursday. And yeah, and you know, what's interesting is that this is going to be a borderline geek out show. Uh, yeah, it's sort of right on the edge of that, although it's still related to software development. It's just, you know, plus it, it, we're going to get, I know we're going to get some Carl history before this show's over. Uh, you probably will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The culmination of all of my efforts right here in one right. show. Right. Well, let's start off with uh, Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Uh, you know, we've talked about it on the show, but I'm amazed at how many people send us emails and saying, you ought to do a show on X, and we've done it, you know? Well, that's the consequence of 850 shows. Exactly. So I just want to give another shout out to Monogame. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Monogame is an open source implementation of the Microsoft XNA4 framework, and they have a new website at monogame.net. So they say, our goal is to make it easy for XNA developers to create cross-platform games with extremely high code reuse. We currently support iOS, Android, Windows, both OpenGL and DirectX, Mac OS X, Linux, Windows 8 Store, Windows Phone 8, PlayStation Mobile, and the OUYA console. The OUYA. My OUYA is on its way. OUYA. I've never heard of OUYA. So OUYA is a uh, Kickstarter project. They had an idea to build an open source gaming console. It's just a little cube, and they needed a quarter billion dollars to make it practical. They needed to sell a thousand or something to manufacture them, and they raised $10 million. You know, I find it fascinating that at a time when Microsoft is sort of downplaying XNA, that it suddenly becomes this cross-platform framework. Well, and the whole, I think the bigger issue, and this is what I think the OUYA is really stepping on, is... The business of the big game company, the Electronic Arts, Blizzards, and so forth, is crumbling. The small game developer is, is slowly taking on, mm. and none of the major game consoles is doing anything about it. And, mm. and Microsoft, arguably, is going backwards on it. Yeah. And somebody like the Ouya, if you haven't looked at the Ouya, go look, because that is completely focused on the open source, small team, uh, internet distributed, uh, donation supported or Kickstarter supported game development. So we, I think we're right at the cusp of complete disruption in the game business and uh, arguably couldn't come too soon. Fantastic. Well, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 838. And that's the show we did at CodeMash on Is Agile Dead? Which was kind of a cheeky title. It was totally a cheeky title. It was very cheeky talk. It was a great, really interactive audience. We had a lot of fun with that. John and Matt and Nyan and, and uh, uh, Van Fleet. I mean, those are all good guys. But mm. this is an interesting comment back. Uh, and I don't know his real name. I think he's sort of messing with it. But uh, the pseudonym is Bash Mohandes. Maybe that is his name. Maybe his name is Bash. I'm just going to call you Bash. Okay, that's fine. So Bash says, I don't think Agile's dead, but I think it got ruined by companies that think they are doing it but are just fooling themselves mm. or using it as an excuse to keep changing requirements on poor developers. Yep, and that's been our theme. Most of the places I work at have some remnants of agile methods, like daily scrums, but pretty much nothing more. No fixed-size sprints, no sprint planning meetings, no retrospective meetings, or any pair programming or any other agile practices. Yeah, we call it agile but. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're agile uh, but. But there was a, yeah, there's a, that great uh, uh, Dilbert cartoon where the pointy-haired boss is saying, uh, I need you to get some Agile and build this software faster. And, and Dilbert says, there's more to Agile than just faster software. And Dilbert says, that's not what it actually means. 
And the pointy hair boss says, well, find me a word that does mean that. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Bash, totally with you. I think that's actually, in the end, what this show was really about, was getting into the idea that Agile is moving into the mainstream. Uh, People are used to it. It stopped being a term, per se, but people aren't doing it well in a lot of places. So it should be done better. So, sir, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with nearly 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 10 to 15 new courses every month and offering a 10-day free trial of 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including Agile, Scrum, TFD, and a full library of design patterns. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, it's my extreme honor to introduce to you Mark Heath. Mark is a software developer based in Southampton, UK. He's the author of a number of open source projects, including N-Audio, the audio library for .NET. He wishes someone else had written instead. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Mark. Uh, Hi, Carl Richards. Good to speak to you. So I got to start off with the story of why uh, you're here today. I have been struggling with um, a pet project for years, uh, taking a number of approaches to achieving a goal. And here's the goal. Here's the problem. In the studio, and not just for shows like doing podcasts and things, but, you know, when I have a bunch of musicians and everybody needs different headphone mixes and things, I have uh, a digital audio interface, for lack of a better word, with 48 inputs and 48 outputs. Now, most audio interfaces have two channels, right, left and right, and in and two channels out, left and right out. Some of the more fun Firewire ones have like eight inputs so that you can like connect microphones up to a drum kit or something like that. But the really sicko ones, like the ones we use, are 24, and I have two of those. So it's Mark of the Unicorn, MOTU24IO, and it's a PCI-based interface. Uh, You can run up to three of these units uh, simultaneously with one PCI card. And this is essentially what we have in the studio we've been recording on since day one. Now, in order to route inputs to outputs, think about that. You've got a matrix of inputs on uh, one axis and outputs on the other axis, and you got to find the mute button and unmute it at that juncture if you want to route one to the other. And that's generally done for monitoring, right? Or just sending an input to an output. So typically, if you have a Skype set up like we do uh, right now, we're recording you on Skype. I have the output of Skype going to out one of these uh, outputs here and then a hardwired cable going to an input in order to record that on a separate track. Like, that's the kind of stuff that you have to do. And you get this out of the box with the Motu. You get this QMix software mixer. And it was actually better in the last version of the driver. It actually looked, you had 24 sliders and mute buttons and pans and all that stuff. And since I have two, you would have to move a scroll bar across the screen in order to see the second 24 channels. But lately, the the one that we're using right now only shows eight at a time. So the scroll bar, you know, when the scroll bar changes, the it's a very horrible user interface. Like the only thing that you can see that's visibly changing is a very small number across the top. So it's really difficult to use. And what I wanted was just a simply a way to do this in software. I wanted a, a .NET solution where I could say, route this input to that output at this volume and this pan. And it seems like a simple thing. Uh, I tried automation, you know, like MIDI automation. That only worked with the first eight channels. I tried a piece of hardware to do automation. That only, again, worked with the first eight channels. Um, I tried all manner of, uh, you know, libraries, even N-Audio and stuff, and I, and I just couldn't figure it out. So that leads me to Mark the author of N-Audio, which is a wonderful open source audio library for .NET. 
Uh, I knew it could be done. So I left a message on his website and said, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. And he writes me back and says, you know, listen to your show, right? You've been a listener for a long time, I guess. And yeah, yeah, since um, since almost the beginning, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a couple of exchanges and he's like, I have this epiphany. I think I can do this for you and it won't take long. And literally two hours later, he had he gave me a piece of software and it worked. And it's as simple as, you know, a two-dimensional array. You know, you, it's basically a patch bay object where you have a two-dimensional array. The first dimension is the input. The second dimension is the output. And the value is the volume that, uh, you know, the, the volume from zero to one floating point. Brilliant. So, bravo. Thank you. No, thanks. And, um, yeah, the challenge with working with sound cards like yours in Windows is that... Um, the drivers you need to use are typically um, what's called ASIO drivers, yes. which aren't the standard Windows way of of addressing sound cards. Yeah, Steinberg created this ASIO, um, which stands for audio streaming and out. Yeah, so it's very, it's a very, it's like DirectX for audio, right? It's like very low level hardware mapping, uh, extremely fast. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It gives you the um, the lowest latency, which is typically what you really want in the studio, right. and allows you to address all of the the channels. Um, the real challenge with ASIO was just getting it working it with .NET. Yeah. Um, because it has this kind of um, table of function pointers, which is quite a, a challenge to write the interrupt code for. And um, I had a number of goes at it over the years, and eventually a guy called Alexandra Mutel. Um, who is the author of the Sharp DX um, right. open source project? Very clever guy. He uh, he helped me out and contributed some code, and that kind of got us moving in the right direction. And bit by bit, we've kind of got it working on more and more um, people's audio interfaces. Um, and it seems every audio interface I try, I have to do another little tweak to the code just to get it working nicely. It's so wild and weird. Um, so the tell us just a little bit about the origins of n audio and why you know why you set out to do this and obviously it's been a a a pleasure and a curse (laughs) but uh what does it do what doesn't it do it does everything doesn't it um yeah well the origins of it actually go right back to when dotnet first started uh i mean i started n audio in 2000 and uh 2002 um and bef- just before .NET came out, I'd been doing a little bit of Java. And Java had this um, package called javax.sound, I think it was. And somebody had made an MP3 decoder entirely in Java. Uh, and I was really impressed with this. Um, and it kind of made me believe that uh, just-in-time compiled languages could be used for audio, because I kind of thought that um, all audio really needed to be written in C++. And so when .NET came out, I, th- I was h- half expecting there to be a sample level uh, API in the .NET framework, um, similar to JavaX.Sound. Um, but um, there was nothing in .NET 1.1. And so I thought, I'll just write this library for the interim. And in .NET 2, Microsoft is sure to fill in the missing gap. Um, yeah. But um, as you know, that, that missing gap never got filled in. Um, yeah. And so really what N-Audio tries to do is a few things. First of all, I provide managed wrappers for all of the Windows audio APIs. And there are an awful lot of them. And um, a number of new ones have been introduced since I started N-Audio. Also, I try to allow you to work with various audio file formats. So like reading and writing from WAV files, AIFF files, MP3 files, MIDI files, sound font files... Um, yeah, the list goes on and on. Yeah, there's an awful lot of different um, ways that audio can be stored in. So another big part of N-Audio is helping you work with codecs um, right? and decoding and encoding audio. And it, we should just say that, you know, it might seem like overkill for most people, but, you know, uh, I think most apps, if they're going to use sound, they'll just play a WAV file or possibly record a wave file but if you're if you're doing any kind of recording where you need you know any 
anything that is going to happen while you're recording, like showing you the waveform or yeah. showing you a in a uh, input level monitor, then it's not simply a you know a one function that records and then when it's done it comes back. You're going to have to record in buffers and you're going to have to analyze those buffers and figure out the highest peak. Like if you're going to do a, a progress bar as an audio meter, for example, every yeah. buffer you have to take the loudest sample and map that to, you know, someplace on the meter and you have to do that in real time. So we're talking about low level audio processing here. Yeah, that's the key being, um, being able to access the samples, um, the whole way digital audio works is that you have many samples of the signal level every second. And to do interesting stuff like show meters and draw waveforms and perform effects and mix things, you need access to those raw samples. So you'll appreciate this. Back in the early days when Richard was just coming on, we I, I wrote this app using just the low-level audio stuff in the Windows API, so Win32 low-level audio, which is hairy. It was hairy for me. And I wrote it in VB, so that's even funnier. And uh, I would get a buffer and then call out with, um, I would call out to LAME, you know, the, the LAME codec, the MP3 codec, using standard in and standard out, you know, creating a process that runs asynchronously in the background. So it would asynchronously send a block of wave data to LAME. LAME would encrypt that as MP3 data and give it back to me. And then I would send that across a socket connection or a UDP socket. And then on the other side, you know, go through the process backwards. So I basically wrote Skype. And uh, the problem I had with it is not using UDP at first. And when, when we had, uh, when we were, we were actually trying to test this, remember Richard, we were testing this uh, yeah. and we had actually did a couple of .NET rock shows with it. And it, it, we got it to work pretty good from Vancouver to New London. It was when I was in um, Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. <laughs> when you're, you're just, and it's like, hey, you know what? The speed of light's the speed of light, and you're on the other side of the world. Well, I think the real problem that I, reflecting back on it, is I was using uh, TCP instead of UDP. Right. And TCP does, you know, we hear, you know, you're not guaranteed to get packets and stuff. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. No, it really is true. You do not, you know, it's not like you're not guaranteed to get them. You are guaranteed to get them. And so because of that, things go slower. And uh, you may get a bonk or a burp before you get, uh, you know, before you get that next packet. So with UDP, it's not guaranteed delivery, but uh, it does go faster. And with audio, if you lose a blip, you lose a blip. I mean, we, it happens all the time with Skype, right? So after that, I was like, you know, I, I don't ever want to write any more of this low-level audio code ever again. It's just too hairy for me. So I was really happy to find uh, to find all of that stuff just wrapped up in an audio. And you have actually done some plugins for Skype, haven't you? Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, quite a, a funny story, really, because um, Dan Fernandez at the Coding for Fun blog got in touch with me a while ago and asked if I'd write an article for their Coding for Fun blog um, to do real-time voice effects in a Skype conversation. <laughs> so that um, he what he what he asked for was a Darth Vader voice effect, and um, <laughs> and my initial. <laughs> My initial response was, um, I don't think I can do that. I've got no idea how I would, how I'd get access to the sample level data in um, in a Skype conversation, Skype, and, I, yeah. and I don't know what uh, audio DSP I would do to uh, to a voice to turn it into Darth Vader. Maybe a bit of pitch shifting and playing of some background breathing noise over <laughs> the top. Um, but then I discovered um, there's a com object called Skype for com. Right. And it lets you kind of connect to Skype via TCP IP. And you can ask it to intercept the audio. Um, I think it's uh, 16 kilohertz mono audio. And, um, and so I thought, okay, I'll give this a go. And I was really interested at the time in adding some, some aud music audio effects to Ed Audio. So I wanted to do things like um, dynamic range compressors, EQs, delays, 
choruses, flanges, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I thought if I can um, if I can use this to make an audio effects framework, that that would be quite good. So I I made this um, plugin that allowed you to pass the audio through some eff uh, an effects stream, so a, a bunch of effects all chained together. And probably the, the most fun one was the pitch shifter. Right. So you could kind of turn your voice into a chipmunk effect by going up um, an octave or so, or, or, or turn yourself into a troll by going down an <laughs> octave. Um, and I submitted this article off to um, Coding for Fun. I didn't really expect anyone would ever ever use it. In fact, I called the application testapp.exe. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, probably about six months to a year later, um, they got in touch with me and said, you know, lots of people are downloading this. And I realized I've, I've, I've had over a million downloads of, <laughs> of wow. this um, oh, test Um And yes, some site in Brazil, for some reason, directs a lot of people to it. So I've been working on a version two that can play sort of silly sound effects in the background. I know why. In Brazil, because they have those TV ads that go, Sabado uh, <laughs> Gigantico. Uh, no, that's not Brazil. That's Mexico. I'm sorry. So, yeah, that's actually been my greatest ever hit in terms of. <laughs> awesome so, here's this work of art called N Audio, which you've clearly <laughs> killed yourself, like worked really hard to build a. You support all these different uh, protocols and, and different right. APIs, 100,000 downloads. Oh, but make your voice sound like Darth Vader on Skype. <laughs> Two million downloads. No problem. Oh, man. So it's all about the apps. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what about um, plugins for, for audio, uh, for doing real-time effects just in, you know, Windows? Let's say I wanted to add a reverb effect to my microphone, and I'm just monitoring it through, you know, just through my microphone is that something you could do with an audio uh yes yeah what you do basically is um th the way windows audio apis are set up they tend to separate the inputs from the outputs so you'd open an input device and an output device and then an audio would give you a callback every time the input device got a certain number of samples um, and then what you do is you'd pass those samples through your reverb effect and then you'd hand them off to the um, to the output device. Right. And the way I usually do that is set up some kind of circular buffer. So the output device is, if you like, pulling the sound through the pipeline. It's probably the best way to think of sure. uh, an audio. It's kind of like streams, right? Yeah, you know, a pipeline of streams where one is based on another, is based on another, and one passes to one, passes to one, passes to one. Yeah, that, that's right. It's a bit like a guitarist will plug their guitar into, say, a wah pedal and then a distortion pedal and then a delay pedal and then the amp yep. uh, it's very much like that with uh, an audio you you chain together different um wave providers they're called sample providers um is a new thing that i've i've added to allow you to work directly with floating point samples which makes life a lot easier for doing effects this portion of dotnet rocks is brought to you by our good friends at telerik who are now offering rad controls for windows 8 it includes over 15 native XAML and HTML controls that guarantee to shorten your time to market, get your app certified faster, and deliver better ranks. The suite is already used by a number of apps on the store, including the official Windows 8 app of Booking.com. Download a free trial at Telerik.com slash Metro. That's Telerik.com slash Metro. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So I think I think this is a good time to just sort of geek out on the basics of audio and digital audio. Do you mind going down that rabbit hole for a minute? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think certainly I found with a lot of people who use an audio, um, they do need a good grounding in how digital audio works. Um, things like sample rates, right. which is how how many times every second you are measuring the amplitude of the audio signal. So um, most audio in Windows will be at 44.1 kilohertz, which is what CDs are at. Right. Which is but kind of an arbitrary number. Why 44.1? Yeah. I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. You know, what's wrong with 50? 
Well, there, there is actually sort of a reason for that, and that's that the human ear has a, um, a response range that goes from down 20 hertz up to, if you've got really good hearing, you can hear audio at 20 kilohertz. Now, what we're right. talking about here is frequencies, and you think about uh, frequencies as um, the bass and treble controls on your stereo, but separated into a lots and lots of little little buttons. So if you think about that's what an equal, equalizer is, is it's just, you know, taking a treble in bass and spreading it across 32 different bands. And so if you look at each one of these bands, the center of them would be a frequency range. At the very low end, you have, uh, you know, what, 100 hertz or 50 hertz, just or 20 hertz probably. Um, and that would be cycles per second. So that's a very low bass. And then at the very top, you have uh, 20,000 hertz. And so this is what he's talking about. From the, the, what we can detect, uh, below 20 hertz is very, very rare for any human to hear below 20 hertz or to hear above 20,000. Yes, yeah, so, um, so 20, 20 kilohertz is pretty much the highest frequency any human can hear. And there's a, there's a kind of a digital signal processing theory called the Nyquist theorem that basically says if you want to record a 20 kilohertz sound, then you have to sample at at least double that rate. Right. So we have to sample at least 40 kilohertz to be able to record all the sounds in the human hearing. And that's just range. to give you enough dynamic range so that it could be very quiet and you could still hear it. Isn't that true? Um, well, the dynamic range comes more really from the bit depth. Um, so if you record at six, if every sample is 16 bits, then that gives you 96 decibels of um, dynamic range and 24 bits will give you more dynamic range. So you can have more sort of levels of loud to quiet. Um, some of the early computers were 8-bit and if you hear music at 8-bit, it sounds horrible, really. Uh, very digital. Right. So the sample, and this is something that a lot of people get confused on, the sample is an amplitude. It's a single value of volume. Isn't that right? And so then when you look at those volumes over time, they form sine waves. And then those sine waves uh, have rates of uh, time, you know, a rate, uh, how much time it takes to go from a peak to a trough to zero. And uh, that is called the wavelength. And the frequency is uh, essentially the, the length of that wave. Yeah, that's right. I mean, essentially, when you're speaking into a microphone, you're generating an electrical signal that's going up and down. And all the sampling is doing is just taking the, the voltage at different moments in time. Right. And, it, and in, I think it was like the CD was one of the first things that really was we were when we digital audio really took a hold and 44.1 was the one for the for CDs. Yeah. Because because PCs, well, we run into this all the time, right? When you're first setting up auditions and so forth for our doing our own recording, I think it defaults to 48. And if you do, right. you can't mix 48 and 44.1 together. Bad no. things happen. And there's a great video online. I, I'll, I'll provide a link to it, but it's a, a video of Van Halen playing Jump. And they had a pre-recorded track. And the pre-recorded track was accidentally played at 48. And they were playing along to it, of course. That changed the pitch, made it faster, uh, and uh, it was just a hair. What is it, like one and a half steps off? It's so dissonant that it's, you know, you feel like you're singing in different keys, and you are. They were actually singing in the wrong key and playing in the wrong key. Yeah, and, that and resampling to different sample rates can be a problem with... Um with audio in Windows because you can't be playing a 44.1 kilohertz file at the same time, say, as a 16 kilohertz file. Yeah. So one has to get resampled to another. And there are some Windows APIs that will do that resampling for you. And the more low-level ones won't do that, and you have to do that yourself. And the, the general, well, it, it, there's trade-offs both ways, right? If you are upsampling, in other words, taking 44.1 to 48, uh, it's not so big of a deal, such a big yeah. deal. You're not losing anything. 
In fact, you know, you're adding a few steps, but they're so microscopic that nobody will hear the difference. If you're downsampling from 48 to 41, you are actually losing some information. Yeah, also, if you downsample, you have to perform what's called a filter to um, take out all of the frequencies that um, are too high to fit into the downsampled sample rate. Right. Um, right. Otherwise, you get what's called aliasing, and you kind of hear weird noises going on in the background, right. which are high frequencies that can't be represented at the lower sample rate. Just sounds weird. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Ah, it must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner is Steve Collins from the UK. Congratulations, Steve. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes, golf clap for you. And uh, he wins a DevCraft Complete Collection. Everything Telerik does in one box. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. You could win, too. And every December, we give away five grand worth of technology. Really true. Rob Corbett didn't believe that it was for real when I sent him the email. His friends told him it was spam and to run away, run far away. <laughs> but he actually ended up with a, a beautiful new machine, a developer machine that Richard Campbell spec'd out. And uh, we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000, Mark, what would you spend it on today? <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I'm thinking at the moment I could do with a, a better uh, piano, MIDI controller keyboard, because ah. uh, uh, the one I've got, um, the velocity uh, range of the keys isn't really quite uh, quite as smooth as I would like. You need a Nord Stage 2, my friend. That sounds very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that $5,000 worth of keyboard? Uh, yeah, definitely. There you go. See... Most people have a tough time spending five grand, but when you get into audio music gear, <laughs> no problem. And you know, that is a great segue to my next topic, which is audio snake oil. And you know, this is this has been something that came to my attention through my good friend, Ethan Weiner, who's been on the show before, and he uh, gave me my first job at Crescent Software. We were actually one of the first two companies to make VBXs for Visual Basic back in the day. So the genesis of .NET right there. Um Anyway, so the problem is that when digital first came out, and granted, some of the codecs, and especially the CD players of the day, were kind of cheap and tended to munge the audio in the high-frequency range and uh, were maybe a little dirty and didn't sound all that good. But that they quickly got better. That wasn't the real issue. The real issue is that people who were used to their records you know, were listening to CDs and hearing things they couldn't hear, didn't hear before. And it was almost like they were complaining that it was too clean, that it was artificial sounding and sterile sounding. And really what they were experiencing was the loss of an effect, which is analog distortion, which is a pleasant sound. Analog distortion, when your album wears out a little bit and it gets a little distorted and buzzes a little and hums and it's like, mm, yeah, and it sounds warm and they use the word warm to describe this a lot. And so that that isn't there. I mean, that that doesn't smooth over the mistakes that uh that that may be there. So when you hear uh, a CD, you're listening to pretty much a perfect signal. And once it's perfect, how do you make it better? How do you improve it? This economy is based on new and improved. And so you have to either add more features or you have to somehow convince the consumer that your uh, digital audio is better than somebody else's digital audio. And that usually means higher numbers, right? So, and I told this story before on Handsome Minutes, I think. But this is a great story. So, I'm a firm believer in recording in 32-bit and then uh, downsampling to 16-bit. But I don't go any higher than that. And I don't go any higher than 44K. And here's why. Uh, you know, so there's 96K uh, devices out there that record at, you know, 96 kilohertz instead of 44.1, and they claim to have higher fidelity and that you can hear the difference and all that stuff. So during the recording of Steely Dan's Two Against Nature, Roger Nichols, the engineer, was talking about this in a special I saw. He said they did two recordings simultaneously, one on 96K, uh, in 24-bit, I believe, and the other 
in 16-bit 441K. And both systems were run in parallel, and they did this as an experiment. And at the end of the session, they mixed everything all down and listened to the result. Nobody could tell the difference in a double-blind test. Nobody. Not even the Steely Dan guys, not even Roger Nichols, who arguably has the best year, had, he's dead now, had the best years in the business, right? And then if you think about ultimately what people are going to listen to is a completely munged MP3 file, which doesn't even go above 16K. Usually there's a cutoff at 12.5, right? Yeah, certainly um, if you use the lower bit rates of MP3, then you really can hear the the artifacts and, and changes. I think if you go up to, say, 192 um, kilobits per second and higher, then the uh, the quality of MP3 improves quite a bit. But, um, yeah. But yeah, in a double blind, double blind listening tests are definitely the way to go. And they often surprise you in what you can and can't hear the differences between. And just to remind everybody, double blind means that the person who is pushing the button doesn't know whether it's 16 bit or 32 bit. And the person listening doesn't know. So nobody in the, in the test knows which is what. Double blind. Well, let's get back to the whole MP3 thing as a whole, right? You can, you could, doing codings at very high quality but if you're taking it off of a source of a cd what what difference is it going to make well a cd is an mp3 quality a right. cd is cd quality but if you yeah i, I get well, what depends you're saying on what mp3 right i mean this is just what what uh, mark was talking about right. is you can you can do your mp3 encodings of very high quality but it depends on the source that's right and often what happens is the end result of all this great, crazy studio audio stuff with 96K and 24-bit is an MP3 that's lossy anyway, right? So what's the point? Why are you generating all that data? And then you listen to it on earbuds that cost $5. That's right. (laughs) That's most people's experience of audio. I mean, when it's amazing when people step into the studio and they just hear music on our system here, which is really, really nice monitors, right? And a big subwoofer and everything. They're like, oh, wow, this studio is great. But essentially, it's uh, just a really good system that you don't usually get to hear. Just up against the actual sound. Mark, you've done dealt with MP3. Don't you have a project uh, that de- deals with MP3? Um, yeah, well, I mentioned earlier that um, there was a Java project that had completely uh, decoded MP3 in um, in Java, right? And um, I always wanted that for um, for an audio because um, in Silverlight you're not allowed to make calls into Windows APIs. Right. So if you wanted to decode an MP3 in Silverlight, you would have to do it entirely in in managed code. And so um, I've had a number of goes at um, porting that um, to C Sharp. And I, I turned that into an open source project called NLayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think hardly anyone uses it, but um, but I've recently had someone else contribute to that project and, and improve the code quite a bit. Um, and I think some other people have done similar things. Um, so yeah, there's there's fully managed MP3 decoding um, available in um, in .NET if you need it. Although the good the good thing about um, Windows is that since Windows XP, there's always been an MP3 decoder available as a codec. Sure. Um, and Windows 8 has actually added an MP3 encoder, which is brand new. Does, uh, this is interesting. Does N-Audio have an MP3 encoder as well? Well, thanks to, um, thanks to Windows 8 um, adding it, um, N-Audio can let you access... Basically, N-Audio doesn't really contain many codecs itself. There are a few I've added in there but it allows you to access the codecs that are on your system. And there are two different subsystems in Windows for codecs. One's called ACM, Audio Compression Manager, and the other's called Media Foundation, which is the um, successor to that. And uh, in Windows 8, you can um, Media Foundation has got MP3 decoder and encoder. It's also got an AAC um, decoder and encoder. So in the next version of NAudio 1.7, um, I've done done all the interop for that to allow you to encode MP3s directly, assuming your system has got the codec. Otherwise, 
Um, I actually still recommend that you use that lame dot um, xe technique right. that you were talking about, Carl. And in fact, I remember your show where you talked about um, using standard in and out for mm -hmm. that, and I thought it was a brilliant idea. And I've used it myself on a, a number of projects where I've wanted to record to MP3 on the fly. Yeah. Or just compress it on the fly, you know, yeah. compress it, send it, decompress it. Isn't there a bunch of licensing problems around MP3? Isn't that why it's always been, I mean, MP3 has been around a long time and um, goodness knows I was ripping MP3s, you know, back before even Napster was cool. But what's the problem here? Why have we always struggled around licensing for MP3? You, you do have to pay a license if you ship a commercial application that can encode uh, mp3 and so i mean that's a problem if if you're trying to make a commercial product i don't really know how legal it is to for your open source projects free programs to use lame.exe um but yeah there are licensing issues around mp3 but and and there have been people trying to promote other codecs to that are completely free such as uh, og vorbis right was one that had a lot of um, people trying to push it but it really does seem like mp3 is has, is the de facto standard. Yeah. Yeah, for better or worse, it's almost, it's just, I mean, we used to encode rocks in all these other formats, and after a while, you're like, MP3 is the only one anybody cares about. Right. Yeah. Very few downloads of the other formats. Yeah, it just sort of, that's that's what it is, for better or worse. You know, the same way that Xerox became the name for photocopying, MP3 became the name for digital music. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Let's talk a little bit about the early days of audio. And uh, I, do you remember the Sound Blaster, right? Um, yeah, I was I was um, tr trying to remember what the first one I got. I think the first Sound Blaster I bought was called um, an OR32, and it actually had memory slots on it, yeah. so you could load you could load RAM onto onto your sound card, and it had a built-in MIDI synthesizer, and you could load samples into that sound fonts. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, in, in many ways, the, the sound cards back then were were more fully featured than they are now. It's funny, isn't quite it? often quite often would have these synthesizers on board. Yeah, and, and granted, the synth didn't sound very good. I think it was no. a watered-down version of a Roland AWE32 or something like that, wasn't it? I, I can't remember, but um, maybe that's why it was called an AWE. But I, I, I worked for uh, Voyetra, which was the one of the... Uh, well, I think they were around before Cakewalk, but... They were a DOS sequencer, right? They had Sequencer Plus, which was a DOS-based sequencer. And I worked in tech support there. And that right. was great because <laughs> in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, DOS plus musician equals chaos, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get a musician who doesn't know computers, trying to, you know, edit config sys and, and stuff and I remember I had people call up who said, all right, so I uh, put in the disc and I DOS her up. Yeah, DOS oh her up. Well, anyway, uh, I remember one call, and I've said this before, too. I've told this story before, but what? Uh, uh, I, I just got your product, and what's this black thing with a hole in the middle? <laughs> yeah, that's your disc, sir. My disc. <laughs> I mean, I got to have a computer to use this. So they didn't even know they needed a computer. But yeah, but we, uh, Voyetra, um, made a deal with uh, sound the Sound Blaster guys to provide their MIDI sequencer in the box for their MIDI kit. And I actually ended up doing a few of the MIDI files that went in that kit. And so if you hear Reggae Mid or there's a couple other ones, uh, okay, I think I've I think I've got that floppy disk. Jazz Mid. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there's another, there's three or four of them. But anyway, those were mine. And, uh, you know, I just did them while I was working there. But I do remember being at a conference with Mr. Sim, who is the guy from Singapore who started Creative Labs. And um, <clears throat> being uh, at the booth at uh, either a tech ed or a PC expo or somewhere like that. And uh, talking to him about the Sound Blaster. We're using all those crazy uh, talking parrot apps and all of that. And, yeah. you know, he was just a fun guy, very smart guy. We had dinner with him, too. He was a brilliant man, very, very quiet, but brilliant. Yeah, I remember I installed all these cards, right? I, I remember installing AdLib cards. Oh, geez. The IBM PCs, 8-bit ISA cards. And that's what, back when you had to deconflict IRQs. And oh, that, we've come so far. Figure out all that address spacing. Like, that was, it was a skill. Guy gave you a list of features he wanted in your machine, and you had to figure out what cards you could put in based on what IRQs and memory address blocks you had available. That's right. And, you know, that was the number one problem in tech support was IRQ conflicts. Yeah. You had to basically use a jumper on a video card sometimes to, I think it was the horizontal refresh or retrace or vertical retrace or diagonal retrace. I can't remember, but there was a retrace option that you had to set on a video card with a jumper. And Typically, it was on by default, and it had to be off because it conflicted with our cards. <laughs> Ouch. Yep. Constant battle. And we just don't even think, well, now, I mean, this market's gone, right? There are no sound blasters. This, every motherboard out there doesn't just have sound. It has a, it has Dolby 5.1 sound or 7.1 sound. And here's the funny thing is that the components that are built into motherboards these days sound better and are better than those uh, than those early sound cards were. Sure. And even some of the, the pro audio stuff. Like, it, the components have gotten so good and so cheap that they're just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. What um, What's next for N-Audio? Where do you see this going? Um, well, I'm kind of hoping that Microsoft's aren't going to come up with any new audio APIs. Because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got a little bit fed up of um, uh, some doing the interrupt for some of the com-based APIs, which just seem to go on and on forever. Well, I'm, uh, I'm always frustrated. Why are there so many? Like, do these all have a purpose, or are they just a bunch of bad ideas? Like, we talked about ASIO right at the top of the show. Is sort of that's the low-level API. That is the way to go if you got to talk right to the hardware. But now you've got what else? Wave out. Yeah, uh, WAS, the, WAS API direct. Direct sound. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's at least three or four different ways that you can you can I, deal with audio in Windows. I see them as evolutionary. They just sort of, you know, they came out in series based on what the hardware of the day was, you know, was exposing. And when the hardware got better, you could make a lower level uh, driver system that worked better. That's just my take on it. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft's, um, seem to have settled on on Wasapi, the uh, Windows Audio Session API. Um, and what I've been working on recently is getting um, Windows Store app support um, for N-Audio because you can't use any of the old wave in and wave out um, functions in a Windows Store app. You have to go through uh, Wasapi, um, which is a bit of a challenge really because... Um, because Wasapi is is more low level than wave in and wave out, and it doesn't hmm. do things like resampling for you. So I've had to um, wrap the Media Foundation resampler just to let you play audio at any sample rates in Windows Store apps. Um, wow. But that's kind of the big feature that I'm hoping to put in the next N Audio um, will be support for Windows Store apps. So what about um, ASIO in a Windows Store app? I don't think that would get past the certification. I'm not hmm. sure. Um, but you're not really allowed to call into just any old uh, DLLs uh, in a Windows Store app. I, c I could try it. It would be interesting to see what happens on my system. Um, another problem with Windows Store apps is that there's no support at all for MIDI at the moment. Right. And a lot of the applications that I'd like to write um, for Windows tablet devices would involve MIDI in some way. Um, so I'm really hoping Microsoft 
address that in the near future because I think they're losing ground to the iPad um, in terms of interesting uh, and innov innovative audio applications. Well, all this could be settled with, you know, some level of uh, P-Invoke with some kind of, um, I don't know, some sort of trust setup for P-Invoke. I'm not sure exactly how that would work. I mean, you're not going to have that working on Windows Store apps. No, but, uh, but you could, you know, with certificates of some kind, you know, I don't know. If it was registered exactly what you could call and that those DLLs were included with your project and you had a certification about them, then, you know, I don't know. Yeah, there is a there is a list of, of Windows APIs that you're allowed to call, and that does include, as I say, was Wasapi and Media Foundation. But a lot of the other Windows audio APIs that um, NAudio's got wrappers for, you, you're simply not allowed to call from a Windows Store application. Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a, a wonderful thing that you've done here. And, you know, just as a side, this patch bay thing, which I hope makes it into the next version of an audio. I don't see why it wouldn't, right? Um, I think this is going to allow me to do some kind of automation in the studio that would just make it easy for my engineers and uh, and anybody else. <clears throat> so instead of having uh, a configuration for each show that we do, you know, I can just have an app with a button that just does the routing for me. Uh, and that's just a huge thing. Like when I told my guys about that, they were like, oh, that would be so great. Because, you know, the, their big problem is, you know, they get to the microphone and they want to talk to the guys who are, are recording. And, hey, ha hey, hello. Nobody can hear me. Carl, what's going on? And it's just, oh, because you got to go to this place in the Matrix and unmute that button right there. Yeah. This place in the Matrix. In the Matrix. <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, it's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, and um, honor to be on your show. And congratulations on uh, so many episodes. Oh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening, and remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get two hundred free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.